time you completed some sort of health checkup. You've been to the doctors uh, to have blood taken, maybe your blood pressure, maybe there's a urine sample, uh, you've had your weight checked, you know your BMI, maybe check your height. I don't know why they check your height, uh, because I don't think it changes too much. Maybe your weight does, but not your height. But anyway, I wonder when the last time you were getting some sort of health check. Some people are greatly concerned about these sorts of things. We know that lots of things can go wrong with not only our bodies, but our minds. And as I look out, none of us are getting any younger. That's true no matter what age you are. But we think of the, not just our physical health. As Christians, we want to think of spiritual health as well. And we don't just consider that as individuals, but as part of a local congregation of Christ's church. And as we come to the end of James, we've seen that God uses him as a sort of spiritual doctor, masterfully treating, if you remember, David Gibson called it a church in danger of dying, a church in danger of dying. And throughout the letter, there have been all sorts of symptoms of something very serious. James hasn't just uh, tried to put a little sticky plaster over gaping wounds. These sin symptoms have not just been a topical issue, but signs of a systemic problem. The heart of the problem is the problem of the human heart, how it is divided in its loyalties, how in one breath we might praise God, but in the next, gossip about our brother or sister made in God's image. James in 1.8 and particularly in 4.8 calls this double-mindedness, and he calls for the purification of our hearts. And we know that, don't we? As Christians, we are to be wholehearted in our love for God. We are to be wholehearted in our love for our neighbor, especially our neighbors in the church. Well, as we come to the end of the letter, and as we saw last time, much of chapter 5 addresses God's people enduring suffering. And in a surprising reality, suffering is a tool in the hand of God to make us wholehearted. Through affliction, God can refine us. Through hardship, God can wean us off our worldly loves. And so, as we look at this final passage from Dr. James, we'll see that spiritual health and physical health are strangely, even shockingly, intertwined. There's also a, a big focus on prayer. Verses 13 to 18, prayer is mentioned in every verse, and so we've got lots to get through. Now, I don't know, uh, some of you maybe know this uh, about me, but for the last 12 years or so, uh, I've been involved in an event down at Castle Well and Castle called At the Castle. Uh, and basically, it's a, it's a Bible teaching weekend for young adults. There's usually somewhere between 100, 160 uh, people along, those in their 20s and 30s. And, and basically, what happens is we have a speaker come, uh, a speaker in the summers coming from Zimbabwe. We've had speakers from all over the world, from North America, Australia, various places. Uh, the speaker in December, actually, uh, after speaking at the event, is coming up to our evening service. And uh, I don't know if Philip's communicated this yet to you, but there's going to be no evening service here that evening. You're going to be coming along all being well to join us again, as, as happened before, as we hear the speaker after uh, speaking on the book of Second uh, Peter. And that's basically what happens at the weekend. There's a book chosen, and the preacher comes along and preaches five talks, 45, 50-minute sermons uh, on this book, on a, on a particular book. Uh, and it's great to see, it's encouraging to see so many young Christians keen to mine the depths of God's Word. But at the very end of the weekend, there's then a, a question and answer session. 
Uh, and at this, there's the opportunity for those who have been there to scribble down on scraps of paper, maybe some questions, some burning question they have about the book, or maybe one of the passages, or maybe a technical question on a specific verse, uh, and then the speaker tries as best as he can to answer those questions, and maybe not just questions about the book, but maybe questions about what it means to be part of the church, what it means to live the Christian life, what it means to be a Christian in a, in a workplace, in an increasingly hostile environment, all sorts of scenarios. Uh, questions are asked, and then answers are given. Well, as we come to our opening verses here in verses 13 and 14 of James 5, it's almost like a mini Q&A session. James addresses members of the church, and it's about responses to various situations. He begins, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. The first question to do with suffering, the word suffering there, it's a general word. Uh, we, I suppose we all know what that means, and, and the way we have it here, it could cover various types of difficulty or hardship. It could be financial hardship, physical hardship, relational hardship, psychological hardship. And because this word is, as we have it translated as suffering, is so broad in its meaning, it means there's something here for you this evening, whatever you might be going through, that you might describe as suffering. God's inspired word calls to us in that suffering, in that need, to look to Him in prayer. And of course, this follows on from our last passage where the call is to be patient in suffering with many reasons given. And so, when, patient, when suffering, be patient, and when suffering, be prayerful. And the way we have it here actually comes as a command with force and authority. It's not, oh, you know, when times are tough, why not consider praying maybe as an option? No, it's let him pray. She must pray. But this is quick fire at Q&A, and as soon as James has that answer out, we have another question. Is anyone cheerful? Now, this world we live in is fallen because of Adam's sin and the continuing rippling consequences which reverberate around our world. Enters our everyday experience. Maybe you know that all too well. Not only the, the first capital S sin, but all the sins which all of mankind have added since. We experience the fallenness of the world, but it is still God's world, created by Him. And throughout the creation story, we hear the words, and God saw that it was good. And there's still so much goodness in this world. And the psalmist reminds us that the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. And so for us as Christians, it's not all doom and gloom, not all suffering and hardship, calling for patience and prayer. Here, James pictures for us someone who's genuinely cheerful. Life is good. Relationships are good. Health is good. The person enjoying the beauty of God's creation. I'm originally from Port Stewart. Imagine someone, I'm sure you've been up there in the summer's evening, maybe not now we're heading into winter, but just walking along the beach there, seeing the sun set, rejoicing in this part of God's creation we live in. But actually, circumstances might be trying for a Christian and they still might be cheerful as they reflect on spiritual blessings possessed in Christ. Just as there are many reasons we might suffer, there are also many reasons we might be cheerful, and the called-for response for such a person is again to turn to God. This time in praise, literally sing psalms, sing a psalm to God, a cheerful, thankful heart welling up in songs of praise. Praise God my soul with all my heart. Let me exalt His holy name. Forget not all His benefits. His praise 
my soul in song proclaim. I nearly sang there, but I'm not too tuneful. But do you ever sing? Maybe you sing on your own when you're just cheerful about something. And it saves the embarrassment when you're on your own, but you're just so thankful. And it leads to almost breaking into song. Well, verse 13 gives us what seems like opposite situations, suffering, cheerful, but actually in both cases, it calls for the same response. Turn to God. When times are hard, when you suffer, turn to God. Turn to Him in prayer. When times are good, when you're cheerful, turn to God in praise. And so whatever, as I look out, whatever your lot right now in life is, God's Word calls you to turn yourself and your situation over to Him. And then James Q&A continues in verse 14 with, is anyone among you sick? And again, that's a question on the face of it we can all easily relate to who hasn't been sick with something. Uh, for those with kids going into school, mixing all the germs, coming home with uh, colds and coughs and all sorts. A uh, few fans, you know, recently, hand, foot and mouth seem to be doing the rounds. Uh, there's that sort of experience that maybe uh, some of us have. Maybe for others, you might just relate more to the aches and pains you continually have. Maybe now that we're heading into colder weather, you feel those more. We might actually think, as, a, as we have that third question there, uh, is anyone among you sick, is maybe a, a more particular example of that general question of, is anyone among you suffering? Having stated the general, James is now moving to a specific example. And we know the response to the various situations so far. As I just said there, it's to turn to God. But then somewhat surprisingly here in verse 14, the answer is, turn to the elders of the church. Now, just as the question might be a particular example of the general situation of suffering, so the answer might be a particular way in which we turn to God, or, or, or a way we show that we are living in submission to God by calling for the God-ordained servants in the church of which you are a part. And this is yet another example in the New Testament of showing us that we cannot go it alone. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. Even for the person who's very sick, unable to come to church, they're still to be connected to the, to the elders. The word elders there in the original Greek is presbyteros. Realize that's, I was mentioning Elijah there. I don't normally mention the, the literal meaning of words, but the only reason I mention that there is because that's where we get the name of our Presbyterian form of church government. Presbyteros, elders, and it's plural, elders. Call, turn to the elders. But let's think more about this sickness because it, here, as we have it, it's clearly not talking about the everyday ailments that we might have. And you get the sense of that just reading the verse. If you look down again there at verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. This is not a common cold for the person is unable to go to the elders, instead calling for them to come to him. Even the fact that the elders pray over him gives the impression that this is someone laid low, maybe unable to get up out of bed. And so the situation James is addressing is one of significant sickness. And these verses 14 to 16 especially are the most problematic part of James for interpreters. They're very challenging to understand. I wonder if you've read those yourself in the past, you've sort of scratched your head and just thought, what is this all about? I do not get what's going on here. And there are lots of questions that come to our minds as we, as we read these verses. Maybe you thought, 
You know, when am I sick enough to need to call the elders to pray for me? Is it disobedient of me not to? And why the elders? Are their prayers better than other people's prayers? Or is it the oil that's important? Is verse 14 a sort of formula that must be strictly followed, a, a form of ritual? Probably won't have time to answer all of those, uh, but perhaps the most difficult question that arises from these verses comes in light of verse 15 and the absolute total sounding nature of it. Verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. The obvious question is why does this not happen all the time? We all know people who have been seriously sick and many people, elders included, have prayed for them they've still died. Yeah, I'm still there. There, there, there's, there. There's a few of us, I'm sure, who have heard of miracles, uh, miraculous recoveries, maybe from people seemingly without explanation from doctors. I heard of one man who was confirmed as having metastatic melanoma, but when he came to his next appointment, it was no longer there. In my home church, I remember a man had a severe case of pancreatitis, and as a congregation, we were told it looked like he was going to die. Much prayer was offered for him, and he survived and went on to live for years. And so while we might point to examples where God appears to have healed people, it's in no ways absolute. It doesn't happen all the time. And yet the way verse 15 reads comes across as absolute. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. Now, there are some who make great claims about healing and exercising a healing ministry, and yet when the person they're praying for doesn't get better, I've heard of the crushing comment to the sick person, well, you didn't exercise enough faith to be healed. It's your fault. Not good news to someone already laid low. Others might say, well, you haven't followed the, the verse 14 formula closely enough. Well, as well as these questions, there's also questions about what's the link here between sickness and sin. It seems to be intertwined in these verses. We might ask, is my sickness because of a sin I've committed? Lots of questions to try and find the right answers to in these verses. Well, to begin to answer these, we need to remember an important principle, and it's this, that though James is written for us in the church today, it is not written directly to us. James is written for us, but it is not written to us. Remember, as we've considered throughout this letter, there's the particular situation of his original hearers, these refugees, the, the 12 tribes of the dispersion who'd had to flee Israel because of persecution. And throughout the letter, James has shown an awareness of how the people in this church have been mistreating one another, particularly with their words. It appears James in this part of chapter 5 has pointed things to say into these specific circumstances. Verse 19 speaks of people wandering away, and then there's also that Old Testament example of prayer that James uses. It's not just a random example. There's all, all sorts of prayers in the Old Testament. It's the example of Elijah in verses 16 to 18, and it's not even him praying for the, the widow's son to be raised to life again, sort of situation that matches with this sick person. It's actually this prayer relating to rain. But the reason for this is because it, it matches on to the big issue of the letter very closely, the dividedness of heart, the double-mindedness, that rain would stop and then start again. We read it there in 1 Kings 17, 1, 1 Kings 18, 1, tells us three years later, 
And then the rain eventually comes after this most famous encounter, Elijah against the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. The big issue in this, as I said earlier, Elijah says to the people, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The people in Elijah's day were double-minded. There was a double-mindedness among God's people. And that fits exactly with James. People wavering and they need to be brought back. I wonder how much are you wavering this evening? And so we need to view this passage not in isolation, but actually in connection with the rest of the book and as further addressing the big diagnosis of the letter. This is not just about healing. There is a spiritual dimension here. There is a sin issue. And look even at the way that the terms used, are, are, they sort of interchange this idea of, of sin and sickness. It says there, uh, verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Save, we might have thought heal the one who is sick would be more accurate. Then it goes on, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Then verse 16 talks about confession of sins, which you would think would lead to a result of forgiveness. But instead we read verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The language of sin and sickness are intertwined. The sin which has been so evident in James is proud, selfish ambition expressed in words towards one another in the church, words which tear one another apart in the church. In chapter 5, verse 9, James said, it says, do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. It looks like there's a sense in which the judgment of God is already falling on this church that James writes to. And there's other New Testament examples of this. We see it in a sort of an extreme way with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. And we see it also in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, Philip mentioned there it's going to be uh, communion uh, next week and uh, that uh, familiar passage, 1 Corinthians 11, that's read uh, during communion. Uh, we read verse 29, 1 Corinthians 11 says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And we normally stop, I certainly stop there. But actually, verse 30 goes on to say, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. And the body there is not talking about bread. It's talking about not treating one another as the body of Christ properly. There's problems in Corinth, and there were problems with those James wrote to, and, and it's all relating to the dreadful way they've treated one another. James says to the church, if anyone suddenly comes down with debilitating sickness, take that seriously. And this ought to underline for us how seriously God takes the way we relate to one another in the church. God is deeply concerned for how we relate to one another in the church, which is the household of God. If we treat our brothers and sisters badly, it is a very serious matter. Double-minded people abusing one another in such a situation, someone suddenly falls ill, that person might do well to consider how they've been treating others in the bride of Christ and whether their illness might be a manifestation of God's judgment or his fatherly discipline. Now, generally speaking, we ought not to think like that. We understand sickness 
as a result of the fall. We live in a now fallen world. So we don't think that a cold or something else is a direct result of sin. However, a sudden case of being laid low, it's at least worth asking yourself, have I been mistreating my brothers and sisters in Christ in Connor recently or whatever your congregation, my congregation? God takes that very seriously. And even from another angle, think about sickness resulting from sin. And in James' letter, as we've said, so often it's selfish ambition and words which bring harm, destroying relationships and damaging the church. Think of the last time you had words with someone or someone had words with you where what was said was vitriolic, where you were the receiver or the giver of harsh, hateful criticism, where your choice of words was geared at crushing the other person. I wonder how well you slept that night. Maybe you tossed and turned. You likely re-ran the conversation in your head time and again, likely made for a sleepless night. And what happens when we don't get enough sleep? Night after night, well, we tend to get sick. Our immune system's weakened. And when we're in the midst of relational conflict, it, it colors our entire experience. We feel under pressure, tension levels are high, we get stressed, people talk about making themselves sick with worry. And it's possible that people are eaten up inside and struggle when in the midst of fallouts with people. Now, maybe you've had that experience at some point, maybe in the last month or two. Probably all of us at some point in our lives have gone through something like that with at least one person. But imagine that being your experience as you walk into church on the Lord's Day, as you spend time with people, the church to which you belong. And it's tearing itself apart with bitter feuds, Wars of words, malicious gossip, where the atmosphere is toxic. And this is the people you're coming to worship with. I could very easily make for someone naturally feeling unwell. James doesn't want to leave this untreated in the church he writes to. And so he does treat it. He brings it to our attention. He doesn't sweep it onto the carpet. Why the elders? Well, a uh, number of reasons we could give. Uh, they can provide assurance. These are, are those who uh, are mature in their belief and their character. Uh, they could teach on the situation. Uh, also, the public nature of the sin. Maybe it's been the spreading of malicious gossip. And so when it's before the elders, it means it's, it's more public. A public sin ought to lead to more public repentance. And this sick person in the congregation, in verse 15, has potentially called for the elders in order to confess repenting of his or her sins. Notice it's not the elders who initiate this, it's the person who is unwell. Almost that through this, as we saw last time, uh, through this suffering, through this affliction, whatever they're going through, it's actually uh, caused them to be refined, caused them to reflect on what's going on with them and to recognize their need to turn back to God from a position of weakness. Why oil? Oil is one of those things that commentators uh, say all sorts of things about. Uh, I think mainly oil in Scripture is used for consecration, being set apart completely for God. We think of priests and kings being anointed with oil, set apart completely, which gives a somewhat visible image of a person being brought back from their double-mindedness and being wholehearted going forward in their love for God and His church. Then move on. Uh, we've touched already on verses 17 and 18 as they relate to Elijah uh, in 1 Kings 17 and 18, but we can say that against all the odds, 
God answered Elijah's prayer. And just on those verses, we might think, well, a righteous person, who's that? Well, it's actually anyone who's a believer in Christ. We might think, oh, it has to be someone extra special like Elijah. We think of Elijah, this great Old Testament prophet. We think of Elijah, John the Baptist being the new Elijah. We think of Jesus' transfiguration and who's there with him. It's Moses and Elijah. And yet when James references him, what does he draw attention to? Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And it goes on there to show that fulfillment. Against all the odds, God answered Elijah's prayer. And God wants James's church and this church to be concerned for one another and to be praying for one another. And in the final couple of verses, we move on from the topic of prayer uh, to the topic of, of truth. And in some ways, the whole letter is summarized in these final two verses. And we really see that these verses are about a wandering brother. Or let me read them again there. It says, my brothers, verse 19, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. A wandering brother, we might also say, could be called a straying sheep. We see it clearly there. Anyone among you who wanders from the truth. So it's talking about a person who has at one time bound him or herself to the truth, but has now decided, no, not for me. A wandering church member is in view here, someone who has previously professed to being a Christian. And elders have a particular responsibility for seeking the straying sheep. We've seen elders already mentioned in this passage, and they do this as, as under-shepherds of the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus, who came to seek and to save the lost, who told the story of the hundred sheep and the one that wandered off. In fact, we could say this is an elder's main concern or job or function, to go after the straying sheep and draw them back, to not be swayed by the excuses that the straying Christian might have as to why they think it's a good idea to miss worship. The Lord has promised to meet with his people as they gather to hear his word, as we do Lord's day by Lord's day. To miss this is to miss an encounter with the Lord of glory. To miss this is to miss a regular invitation to the throne room of the King of Kings. To miss this is to spiritually starve. And so elders among us this evening, the calling is to bring back the straying sheep. Scripture's clear on this. And however, while this is particularly the job of the elders in a church, it's not their job exclusively. Look again at verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, someone brings him back. Someone might be anyone. It doesn't have to be an elder or a minister. So this evening, you, as you sit there, might actually be that someone in the life of a straying, wandering brother. It might actually be a blood brother or another family member, your spouse, your son, your daughter, your grandchild. Is that the case here in this church where there are missing people, where there are empty pews, where are the missing generations? Where are the, the rest of the young families, the children, the grandchildren? We can't magic them up. There are those not here who should be here. Yes, others maybe have moved away and are going to other churches, but no doubt there are still those who live around here who used to be here and no longer are. And I realize that might be a painful thing to hear. Your heart might already be burdened by this sad fact that family members and friends who used to be here are no longer. 
But at the end of James, these verses are given as an encouragement to keep on. Keep on praying for that person who's wandered off. Be there for them. Answer their questions if you can. Invite them back to church. Challenge them about truth as we have it in Scripture and not to buy into the way of the world. And there's then a wonderful encouragement in the final few words of verse 20. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James, in these final two verses, is calling for us to do what he has been doing throughout his entire letter with this issue of double-minded dysfunction seen in the life of the church. At times, as we think of the whole letter, everything that's been said in this letter, at times it's been challenging to hear. James doesn't let us off the hook for what we might think of as sins which are not really that big a deal. He has confronted us continually with various sin symptoms so that we might look deeper into the depths of our hearts and see the need for change. He doesn't just say, oh, be nice to each other. No, he treats the disagreements theologically. He says, if you treat others like this, it's actually because you're, you're thinking untruth about God. And he urges them throughout the letter to repent. And he urges us to repent. And so this letter shows us how serious God is about our relationships in the church. And yet also how willing God is to have mercy when things are put right. And so this evening, as we close, turn to God, turn to the elders uh, when it's needed, turn from sin, turn others from sin. God's grace is the medicine we need. Thinking back to James 4, 6, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Regular medicine of repentance, daily, heartfelt, turning away from sin, turning back to God, coming to Him who is ready to embrace us. The medicine is to start calling our bad behavior what it is. Call a sin a sin. Don't excuse it. Don't say, oh, it's because I was tired. I had a bad day. The kids have been a handful. All these things might be the case. They add pressure to us. But don't downplay your sin. When you do, that means you downplay your need. And that means you won't seek the help that you do really need and the help that God in His grace and mercy is ever so willing to give you. And so draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Well, we're going to close now uh, as we sing.